Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Although many throughout the Western world are quick to criticize Christianity, Jesus remains well-liked. In fact, one of the most obvious answers to the question, why Christianity, is Jesus. To this day, reading the Gospels draws the reader to Jesus' magnetic and compelling way of life. What's more, the less satisfied we are with our own society, the more we find ourselves drawn to countercultural forces. Jesus of Nazareth is just such a person, as it turns out. He spoke truth to power and challenged the religious status quo of his own day. And he remains countercultural in our day as well. And this just may be a strong reason for unbelievers to consider him today. Here now is episode 402, part 15 of our Why Christianity class, Jesus, the Revolutionary, with Daniel Fitzsimmons. I wanted to talk tonight about counterculture and about the, the uh, power that countercultural forces have from their genesis to their sort of fringe acceptance to their uh, complete acceptance and sort of compare that to, you know, Jesus' ministry and, and the countercultural characteristics that, that his ministry embodied. Counterculture is a way of life and set of attitudes opposed to or at variance with the prevailing social norm. So in the middle, we have a heavily tattooed guy. And it looks like he got his tattoos when they were probably a little less culturally accepted than they are today. Now it's a rarity if you're you know, the only one in your block without a tattoo. Um, <laughs> but you know, they weren't always socially acceptable. On the left there, you have what looks like a Woodstocky type bus. And then we have graffiti here. So what are the characteristics of counterculture icons? I'm gonna use the Beatles as an example here. One of the characteristics is that they're different. They present an alternative to the status quo. Their ideas, their art, their philosophies or beliefs must present a challenge to the norm or a new paradigm through which to view the world. They have to be rejected by the establishment, at least initially. Such icons must initially be rejected by the prevailing cultural political norms, and they have to present a catalyst for change. Such icons uh, should affect the culture in a way that substantially alters it going forward. So this is a picture of the Beatles. In the mid-60s, they were sort of a new act. And uh, I have a series of early reviews of the Beatles that I thought was, was kind of funny considering, you know, it's easy in retrospect to, to look at the success that they had. But in the beginning, it wasn't always that way. It says the Beatles, in, in the Boston Globe, it says the Beatles are not mere, merely awful. I would consider it sacrilegious to say anything less than that they are god-awful. In Newsweek in February 1964, the critic wrote, visually, they are a nightmare, a tight, a, dandified Edwardian beatnik suits and great pudding bowls of hair. Musically, they are a near disaster, guitars and drums slamming out a merciless beat that does away with secondary rhythms, harmony, and melody. And a couple more in uh, the Chicago Tribune in the same year says, the Beatles must be a huge joke, a wacky gag, a, a gigantic put on. And in the New York Times that same year, it says, the Beatles' vocal quality can be described as hoarsely incoherent with the minimal enunciation necessary to communicate the schematic texts. It's pretty, uh, <laughs> it's pretty harsh. <laughs> like I said, it's easy to look back and be like, well, you're silly. But 
the Beatles really illustrate, some of you might remember Beatles mania, I certainly don't, but just what a cultural force they were. You know, you had these four people from, I think, Liverpool or Manchester, somewhere over in England. They came over here and they, they started, you know, it could be argued that they started a whole new way to look at and to play and to enjoy music. And it's hard to overstate their, their influence. By the end of 2012, they had sold two billion albums, over two billion albums, the Beatles. Yeah. So clearly, the Beatles were a, a countercultural force that initially, in certain quarters, was rejected. In many quarters in the United States, they were embraced, and their popularity only grew from there. But what sort of happens with a lot of these types of things, these forces, is um, as they get accepted, they get assimilated, and as they get assimilated, they get appropriated, right? So. The culture at large accepted them, the Beatles, as people grew older, as, as, as tastes changed. And here, you know, you have a photo of Paul McCartney accepting an award from President Barack Obama. And you have a, a I Am The Walrus onesie. Uh, you have probably hundreds of cover bands. Uh, those guys on the left, they're not the Beatles. <laughs> they're the Featles. They're the fake Beatles. With a lot of these countercultural forces, it, they sort of fall into that, you know, if you can't beat them, join them paradigm where it's like, well, this is obviously too big to just, you know, shove in the closet and ignore. So we're going to, we're going to embrace, embrace this and make money off of it. And I think, I'll come back to this later, but um, in certain ways, the countercultural force that was Jesus has fallen prey to some of those same things. And um, what I want to talk about tonight is sort of how to counteract that and, um, and present him as the, the gospel presented him in ways to do that. The title is Jesus the Revolutionary. I have here on this slide, Jesus the Radical. In his teaching in Matthew 5, he writes, or he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? This idea of loving your enemies, to my knowledge, is the first time that it's been presented in any, in any kind of teaching, as far as I know. It's been used by other philosophers or by other religious leaders since then, but at the time, this was a really radical saying. Jesus really... Um, challenge the culture and political norms of the Jewish people. Here he is, there's a depiction of him debating with the, you can assume he's debating with the, the Pharisees or the Sadducees. In Jewish culture during this time, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had the power. They were the ones that were seen as being in charge. There are other examples of Jesus subverting culture and political norms. Uh, in the Gospels, we read of him cleansing the temple of the moneylenders and merchants, uh, accusing those engaging in commerce there of turning the temple into a den of thieves. And one can infer from the text that the presence of, of commerce in the temple was, until that point, a common occurrence. In Luke, we read that he healed a woman with the spirit on the Sabbath, which he was criticized for. He did not seek to overthrow Roman oppression through violence, as some of his followers thought he might. But he subverted that expectation with humility, going so far as to surrender himself to what he knew would be his torture and eventual death. And elsewhere in the gospel, we read about Jesus, that despite his his status as the Messiah, the master, the rabbi, and the teacher, 
he was seen washing the feet of his disciples, and that was the example that he gave to. So you see him really in, in a bunch of different accounts sort of flipping what one would consider normal even today and using that to teach his disciples about love and to teach the people that followed him about love and how important love is. So uh, to the second point, uh, Jesus certainly was rejected during his time um, as a countercultural force. The Pharisees and scribes were constantly looking to trip him up and to test him. Their very existence was threatened by Jesus, who, this miracle worker who was gaining followers and was immune to their influence. And eventually they paid someone to betray him. They falsely accused him of subverting Roman rule and championed his execution at the hands of the Roman occupiers. I want to read an excerpt from, um, this is a paper called The Pharisees, Opposition to Jesus. It's by a theologian named S.H. Venor. It's on lastdays.org.uk. He writes, the Pharisees believed in a Davidic king. They believed that he would be ruler over, over Israel, the Jewish nation, not a friend of Gentiles and sinners. The Pharisees were totally convinced that their laws, both written and oral, and religious observances were correct. The idea of the Messiah breaking these laws was unthinkable to them. Throughout his ministry, Jesus violated many of their oral laws. He mixed freely with tax collectors and sinners, making him ceremonially unclean. He ate and drank with them and was called a glutton and a drunkard. He ate with ceremonially unclean hands. He broke the Sabbath laws by healing people and gleaning corn to eat. He forgave people's sins, which to the Pharisees was blasphemy. He also freely criticized the Pharisees for their hypocrisy and self-righteousness. In the Pharisees' eyes, Jesus was guilty of law-breaking and blasphemy. The idea of Jesus criticizing them was an outrage. They also saw him as a threat to their popularity and their authority over the people. Because of this, they plotted to kill him. So um, my third definition of uh, countercultural uh, forces would, would be as a catalyst for change. And I wanted to look real, real quick at um, the records in Acts. This is shortly before Jesus' ascension, when his disciples are basically asking him what's next. And uh, in Acts 1, verse 6, we read, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. In Acts 2, we read the day, uh, about the day of Pentecost, where the disciples actually received the Holy Spirit. In, verse, in Acts 22, or Acts 2, verse 22, it says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. You see a clear demarcation between the apostles, when Jesus was getting crucified, there was fear. There was Peter denying him three times. They were all, it says in Acts that they were all gathered, or maybe in the end of the Gospels, that they were all gathered in a house. And there was, there was a lot of fear there. They didn't, their leader was dead. And then you have the day of Pentecost, this change that happened when they got the Holy Spirit bestowed upon them. And, and they were gathered in a public area, and they were all speaking in bunch of different tongues, and everybody understood them. I mean, if that's not change, and it, and it was amazing to them, and they figured, oh, you know, these guys, these guys must be drunk. So um, further on in Acts 2, it says, 
in 2 verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we were all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles' brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. I love that, that end of verse 40. It says, um, save yourselves from this crooked generation. It's hard to argue that anything has changed since this was written. I mean, do we not live in the midst of an evil and perverse generation? One of the original premises of this class is that if you're not ex excited about your faith, you're less likely to talk about it. Granted that sustained excitement about anything can be hard to maintain, it's probably best to, when it comes to your faith, to have a sustained biblical knowledge that informs and excites your conversations about your faith. But what I wanted to do with this message is this information and viewing Jesus through this revolutionary countercultural paradigm should excite us. And this begs the question, do people really know Jesus? Has, has Jesus been co-opted by pop culture? Do people know actually who Jesus is? Do they think he's you know, some sort of meaningless figurehead to an ancient religion that doesn't matter? Has the portrait of Jesus handed down to the centuries, appropriated, remixed, misused, misunderstood, has it been softened, and can we push back against that? Do people know that Jesus is the linchpin of the Christian faith? Without him and the resurrection, Christianity does not work. Do people know that he was an enemy of the state, a nonconformist? that he cared about social justice, that he was an outsider? Do people know about the historicity of the resurrection and why we believe he's coming back? This is a topic that we addressed in an earlier session. All of this should excite us and cause us to want to share the true Jesus that we know, both in the scriptures, in the study and application of apologetics, and through our personal testimonies. If this class is about why we choose Christianity, it makes sense to know intimately who Jesus is and who he is not. Jesus is not a name to be taken in vain. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is not a statue that hangs at the front of, of some churches or around your neck. He is the Son of God who died for the sins of mankind, ascended to heaven to sit at God's right hand, and he will rule God's kingdom in the age that is to come. And Jesus is not a fairy tale conjured up to control people or to help us cope with the burden of existence. He is the way, the truth, and the everlasting life, and no one comes to the Father but by him. And this truth that we believe, and this truth that we can back up through evidence inside and outside of the Bible, is the best way to communicate our Christian faith to people. It's what we're called, it's the vehicle by which we're called to communicate our faith to people. And in this postmodern, hyper-individualistic information age world we live in, this message can resonate. People are terrified of falling for something, of being had, of being labeled a sheep. We're living in and navigating through a post-truth fake news world. This is the present moment that we're in. 
We're in the age of uncertainty. Nobody knows what's real and true. And isn't truth personal? Isn't my truth the only truth I need to live by? In our fear of believing in the wrong thing, we believe in nothing. In our fear of offending certain groups or being labeled in certain ways, we've ceded control of our public spaces and dialogue to secularism and scientism. We're supposed to stay in our churches and we're supposed to behave and we're not supposed to talk about our faith at work or our faith to our secular friends or to our family members who have already rejected the message. We believed that the internet and the age of information would be the great democratizer, when in reality it has significantly led to increased feelings of isolation and loneliness and corporate monopolization, all while allowing previously isolated bad actors to find communities of like-minded people. We may believe that our self-worth is tied up in Instagram likes and Facebook shares. And then we have the more obvious impositions of reality and the pressures of living in this modern age, terrorism, climate change, an increase in natural disasters, mass shootings, extreme political discord, and decreased economic prospects for younger people. I'm purposely painting a bleak picture here because this is the moment we're living in right now, or it can feel like that to many people. There is progress on a number of fronts around the world, socially and economically, and there is good news to be had too. But this is the best news, and this is a message that I think people are looking for. What I've seen is that people are just tired you know, they're tired of not knowing what to trust. They're tired of not knowing who to trust. They're tired of everybody bickering. They're tired of the politics of life. In Western society today, with so much social and environmental and economic uncertainty, it's true that the message of the gospel presents itself as a preeminently appealing alternative to other choices currently on offer. In Jesus, the truth isn't up to you with your incomplete information, flawed thinking, and emotionally-based reasoning. The truth is in the word, and the truth has nothing to fear. And the Bible wants to be investigated, as Lee Strobel did. And I would encourage us as Christians to present Jesus in this countercultural, revolutionary light. That amidst all of the uncertainty, the figure of Jesus and the truth of the word, both of which have unquestionably withstood the test of time, can free us from the bondage of sin and the pressures of this age. We are called to love one another and spread the gospel and to live as an example to this desperate and dying world. Our example, and the one that we should be striving to present to the world, is the revolutionary Jesus. I'm going to end with a quote from uh, Shane Claiborne. He wrote Jesus for President, which is sort of a political reimagining of Jesus and how it might work in our current system. He writes... The church is a people called out of the world to embody a social alternative that the world cannot know on its own terms. We are not simply asking the government to be what God has commissioned the church to be. After all, even the best government can't legislate love. We can build hundreds of units of affordable housing, a good thing by the way, and people still might not have homes. We can provide universal health care and keep folks breathing longer, another nice move, but people can be breathing and still not truly be alive. We can create laws to enforce good behavior, but no law has ever changed a human heart or reconciled a broken relationship. The church is not simply suggesting political alternatives. The church is embodying one. The idea that the church is to be the body of Christ is not just something to read about in theology books and leave for the scholars to pontificate about. We are literally to be the body of Jesus in the world. 
Christians are to be little Christs, people who put flesh on Jesus in the world today. Well, this concludes this episode. If you'd like to leave a comment or ask a question, you can visit restitutio.org and look for episode 402, Why Christianity Part 15, Jesus the Revolutionary with Daniel Fitzsimmons. We'd love to hear your feedback there. Also, just on another recommendation, if you want to hear more about the life of Jesus, we did have a whole class about Jesus and his life, right from his birth through his ministry, death, resurrection, ascension, and so on. And you can find that class by scrolling all the way down to podcast episode 25, Sources for Jesus' Life. That's Historical Jesus Part 1. So if you want to hear more about Jesus and just the awesome way that he dealt with life and how he taught and how he carried himself and how he interacted in his own time, I highly recommend that class back from 2016. Uh, So you have to scroll down a little bit, but it is there. And I recommend it if you're interested in more about Jesus, more of this content. Also just wanted to remind you that registration is open for UCACon. That's the Unitarian Christian Alliance Conference held just outside of Nashville, Tennessee on October 15th to the 17th. It's going to be a great time for believers from all over, and it's going to be Lots of presentations, very much focused on the academic side of on One God research and engaging with scholarship on various sides of various issues, touching this important subject of God's identity and who is Jesus. So I encourage you to come if that's a topic, if those are topics that you're interested in. We are going to have a number of different speakers And I am working hard on researching the topic of subordinationism, which will be my topic for the event. This is simply the idea that Jesus expressed in John 14, 28, the Father is greater than I, that there is an inequality between the Father and the Son. They are not co-equal. And I've dug up some really fascinating evangelical scholarship on this from Wayne Grudem and a couple of others arguing for a very similar position that Jesus is always subordinate to the Father, even in the beginning, during his ministry, and afterwards forever. So there's a lot to think about there in the sense of how subordinationism makes sense of the biblical data and then there's the question of how does it how does it work with a trinitarian understanding? I'll give you a hint, I don't think it does. So that'll be interesting to explore and I hope you can come and participate in the conference. I suppose the recording of the conference will come out later, but I have no idea honestly when that will be. So if you want to find out about the conference, you can go to unitarianchristianalliance.org and just click on the registration available there. And hopefully I'll get to see you down there in Tennessee. Well, that's it for today. We'll see you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.